This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Near-death experiences, fractals of God, and stacks with Dr. Kathy J. Forty. Episode 70 of the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast, live edition. Welcome to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast, where we explore the unexplained and mysterious phenomena that have occurred throughout the state of Michigan and beyond. From UFO sightings to ghostly encounters, we delve deep into the stories, the evidence, and the theories behind these strange events. We are your hosts. I'm Michelle. And I'm Wayne. We are an educator duo that after an encounter with a triangular UFO in 2018 in Michigan, we decided to investigate UFOs and the paranormal. In this podcast, we will be speaking with eyewitnesses, experts, and researchers to uncover the truth about some of the most intriguing cases of paranormal activity in and around Michigan. Our goal is not to convince anyone of the existence of these phenomena, but rather to provide a platform for discussion and exploration. So, buckle up and join us on this journey down the paranormal rabbit hole. On an escalator. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. We are live, and this is episode 70, and tonight we're going to have an amazing show for you guys. So today is Friday the 27th, October 2023, and I'm finally starting to feel better thanks to some major antibiotics, and it's uh, fighting pretty nasty this pure Michigan sinus infection and uh, the antibiotics I'm on are vicious. I mean, so I can't wait to be off of them. So anyways, grab your favorite drink, settle in for this Friday evening as we get ready to bring on our guest for this episode, who is Dr. Kathy J. Forty, who is talking to us about her near-death experience and what has happened to her as a result. I think you all will be shocked by her story. But first, let me bring on my lovely wife and co-host, Michelle. Mich- Michelle, where? <laughs> oh, wait a minute. There she is. <laughs> You got abducted. I, I had a little too much fun today <laughs> at work. I channeled my my inner theater from high school. Yeah, that was that was great. And uh, you're now a, a viral sensation with that video. So it's just uh, it, it's really uh, something how uh, 
Here's what I'll say. People. If anybody's ever looking at losing a quick five pounds, just put on one of those inflatable costumes and wear it for about an hour and a half. Absolutely, man. You know those things. They, they don't breathe at all, even though there's like a little fan to inflate them. It's, it's pretty vicious. Nope. It's like you're wearing a sauna. Yep. All right. Well, let's get going into this. So for those of you listening to this at a later date on your favorite podcasting platform, you can catch this show live and join us in the live chat. Uh, if you want to catch us live, we currently stream on YouTube X and our Facebook group. All the links are below in the show description. So we have some of the best live chats on this topic around. So come on in and enjoy the live show. If you are here with us live or watching this on YouTube and want to listen to the audio version, we release the audio of this show on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Radio Public, Google Podcast, Audible, and many others. Well, we've got to give some quick hellos to those who are in chat. Yes. we got to welcome aboard. Diane is with us. Janice. Let's see. So we got Diane. We have. There's Janice. Janice is with us. Straw Dog is with us. Let's see. There's Straw Dog. Hello, Rick Davis. There's Rick right there. Welcome, Rick. And welcome aboard Ben, the Yorkshire Gophonian. Hey, welcome, Ben. Good seeing you. All, All right. right. I think that's everybody who's active in chat right now. Yeah, right now it's a Friday night. Yeah, so I got... want to thank you guys for spending your yeah. Friday night with us. Yep. Um, remember that the live show and the podcast happens because of all of you. So the viewers and the listeners of the show, if you would like to help support the show, you can do so via super chats, super stickers, become a YouTube member. I know that Diane's rocking some of those uh, cute little driver clip arts in chat tonight um and you can find all of the links below in our show description however still one of the best ways and we know how youtube is to like share and subscribe it is crazy how much my seven second video today <laughs> has added to the the podcast i thought i would just yeah. have fun with it on facebook next thing i know yep a hey, quick shout out to uh jeanette angel who's joined us also mark uh colligan i think that is uh welcome thank you for joining us so glad you could be here remember if you have because we have uh, a listener communication episode coming up soon within yes, the we next do. week yep so if you have a story that you would like for us to you know put on air and talk about and kind of dissect a little bit uh, you can email us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. So, and then also the email link is in our show notes. Yep. And just before we bring on our guest tonight, we need to do a couple of shout outs to thank our Patreon members. We have Tabin R, Hava H, and Lisa B. Also, we need to give a special thanks to our new YouTube members. We have Jeanette Angel. We have Mama Dorothy Hawkins, Ghost Dragon ZW, Girl in the Desert, and Diane Boss. So once again, since we've been able to monetize, we cannot, uh, well, at least get super chats and things like that. We can't thank you guys enough for supporting us and um, becoming members and things. And everybody, you can also do that as well. So, Michelle, 
I say we jump into this and I... let's get ready to bring on our guest. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Dr. Forty? Oh, this isn't a little bit. So Kathy Forty, PhD, is the author of the newly released truth book series, Stacks, the Library of Truth and Stacks Awakening Truth, a sci-fi thriller which takes place in Washington, D.C.'s Library of Congress, where a library employee accidentally opens up an interdimensional portal into a library within a library where all truth is stored. Prior to penning her novel, she was a clinical psychologist with over 30 years of experience in the mental health field. Her knowledge of psychopathology adds unusual character depth to her stories. As a direct result of her own near-death experience in 2003, where her heart stopped, Forty became more creative. This led to the development and patent of the Trifinity 8 and Ascension 11 energetic software technology now used by holistic healing practitioners worldwide. With a degree in journalism, she worked for several years as an associate producer for CBS TV. She also wrote a TV pilot script for Stax that won a Slam Dance Teleplay Award. She launched with the help of Pacific Rock Productions, which was led by an Emmy-winning producer, an original 11-part web series called Stax, The Truth Can Kill You. She has authored a nonfiction book as well, Fractals of God, a Psychologist's Near-Death Experience, and Journeys into the Mystical, and a children's book series, Freddie Brenner's Mystical Adventures. Forty is a blogger and was a keynote speaker for Nexus Magazine in Australia in 2010 and 2015. She addresses subjects related to health, consciousness, spirituality, and the weird and wonderful. For years, she has been leading ancient mystery school groups to Egypt, having explored the water tunnels under the Great Pyramid, as well as closed-off tunnels under the Sphinx sometimes referred to as a female Indiana Jones, after finding alien artifacts in Mexico, she is at heart an ancient explorer of the origins of humanity. Born in Chicago, Forty has called many cities her home, including New York City, L.A., Santa Monica, Kansas, Prescott, Arizona, but now she's in Maui, Hawaii. Ooh, gorgeous. All right. Modern mountains. Yes. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, please help us welcome to the show for the first time, Dr. Kathy J. Forty. Hi, hey. how are you? Hello, Wayne and Michelle. And Michelle, I have to say, I loved your abduction video. <laughs> that was classic. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure the kids are going to be talking about it for a while. Oh, it's making the rounds on YouTube. So there's going to be plenty of talking about it. <laughs> I forewarned my, my teenager that it was going viral. So it's just like, just a heads up. And then I sent her a bunch of laughing emojis. So she doesn't know to take me seriously or mm -hmm. not. <laughs> yeah. You never know. I mean, it's sort of like, yeah, the, as I was listening to your what you said about the uh, and I have to say my my publicist probably needs to make that 
a lot shorter uh, that <laughs> intro. <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness. Um, yeah, I, I'd have to say my life has been the weird and wonderful. And uh, I suppose if you would look at it, it's uh, a planet weird born in the sign of Scorpio. And, um, mm. you know, the first uh, I started having experiences, um, not near-death experiences, but kind of awakening experiences into the paranormal, um, you know, before I was 20. Oh, so, interesting. Uh, and, you know, as a clinical psychologist, I found that there's a certain thing that sometimes opens up that paranormal in a person. And, um, you know, I have to say that at the time I was living in Chicago and I was involved in a theater production at uh, Goodman's School of uh, Theater in, in uh, downtown Chicago. And I was uh, going to my car and I, you know, it was kind of later at night, you're not paying attention. And, you know, I was attacked and assaulted. And I thought for sure I was going to die. And um, it was very interesting what happened uh, because I, I'm sure that had I started getting really acting crazy and screaming and so forth like that, uh, the person who had a knife would have used it on me, you know. And but the whole what opened up my mind was this huge um, movie screen. And in it, I saw myself in the future as uh, a much older woman. Oh, my God. I just my, my face just disappeared there for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I could see the room I was in. I could see I was in a black lacquered uh, Chinese black lacquered rocking chair. I could see the antiques. I could see the color on the wall. I could see all the furniture, the details. And I was uh, talking to two small children and I was reading a children's book to them. And I knew in that moment I was going to survive it. And that's all that I was supposed to know, that don't do anything rash. You're going to survive this and just be cool. And, of course, I was. And um, and then many years later, I walked into uh, my – he turned out to be my husband then – his house for the first time. And there was the room with the black lacquered Chinese locking chair and the antiques Everything was as I'd seen it when I was 18 years old in that in that attack scene. And um, of course, you know, I'm I even though I'm not an older woman as I was in the scene now um, and I'm no longer with him and he's passed. Uh, it was a it was a possible, probable future. It was showing me just just so that I could get through it. And the reason I say this is because a lot of times having worked with um clients, what seems to open up psychic awareness is sometimes physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. Because it, it um, you become hypersensitive, it opens up your senses. So you're alert to all things. And even though I didn't have a child background or family background of any type of abuse, that one served to open that. And after that, I started to have very unusual experiences, you know, and uh, mm. you know, UFOs and um, alien encounters <laughs> and things of that nature. So it's like, uh, where do you want me to begin? <laughs> well, I kind of want you to begin. Um, I don't think that was your near-death experience yeah, and, and i'm very interested in your fractals of god and when when i read that fractals of god it made me think of um like uh divine or sacred geometry 
and and I, I started going back to my Randall Carlson type of classes on sacred geometry and and how all of that is created and how they built these massive uh, things using sacred geometry. Um, but you had a near death experience. Can you? And, and you're one of the first people besides our one friend Jared Murphy who we did a quick show with um, just to let people know he was okay. And he talked about his near death experience where he was dead for almost 45 minutes from a widow maker heart attack, um, but survived obviously. But you had a different type of experience and, and I'm very interested in what happened. And then I would really like to talk to you about, um, as a psychologist and dealing with people that are having these paranormal experiences, how as a psychologist, do you deal with that and not want to just label people as crazy, put them, you know, want them to get put on drugs or whatever. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, anywhere in that frame, take it away. I'm very interested in this. I'll address the the second part first before I go to the first part, because I think that that's really important. I think because of it, I, um, I started to have unusual clients that found me and, you know, it psychically found me, didn't advertise that, you know, if you've got a strange experience, come to me, but they found me, you know, everything from the dissociative identity disorders, which back then used to be called multiple personality disorders, and those people, uh, those defy your, you know, logic, you know, defy, uh, reality. I mean, one's inside that, you know, one time went to a doctor, you know, I had one client that uh, I'll just back up before I do my near-death experience. And, and, you know, normally I don't take somebody to an OBGYN, but she had no family members there and the doctor would refuse to see her because maybe a little alter personality would come out. And when he was doing the exam, would think that she was was being molested and start crying and screaming. And that wasn't very good for his waiting room patients and everything else. So he asked if somebody could be there. And since I was the only one, I made sure that those little altars were, uh, you know, that were like under five and so forth like that, were in a safe place inside the system where other, the older altars were watching them, you know, sort of like a safe place. And so when when I would have an adult altar out for the examination, there was usually went between one adult and the host. One of them showed all the signs of cervical cancer when the doctor took the test. And when the other one was out, no cancer whatsoever. And he retook the test several times. So, you know, he was scratching his head. I was scratching my head and saying, well, that kind of tells you something about the concept of the mind and disease states and everything else. So it really helped me to think outside the box. So my clients were were very instrumental in my own enlightenment and development spiritually, emotionally, physically, and so forth like that. So, um, yeah, my face just disappeared again. <laughs> that vir- the virtual background. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why it does you. that. But anyway, my, my near-death experience happened in 2003, and I was practicing in Los Angeles at the time. And uh, I had my last client of the evening, and she happened to be a Buddhist nun. And she said to me, oh, this is the night of the Wiesak moon. Usually it happens around the first, uh, usually around May 8th every, every year. 
and between the sixth, the eighth, and so forth, like that. And I didn't know what a Wiesek moon was. And she said, Oh, it's when the the dimensions, the veils between the dimensions are very thin and anything can happen, you know, very magical. And, you know, I kind of filed that away. And as I'm going out to the parking lot to my car, I look up at the moon and looks like any other moon to me. And, uh, um, and just as I'm moving towards my car, I feel this whole whoosh energy right out of my solar plexus area, my stomach, chest area. And uh, with it, I was left immediately with a profound sense of emptiness, like all my all my best friends had left or something. And I and the feeling like I was done with my earth, my work here on earth as I knew it. And, you know, I thought, what an odd feeling to experience this total profound sense of emptiness. And I thought, am I getting ready to die? And then I thought, well, what if I'm not getting ready to die and I have to feel this emptiness for the rest of my life? This is not going to be good. So I went home, you know, I wasn't incapacitated or anything. I went home and I'm sitting in my living room and I'm drinking some tea. And as I'm thinking about this, and you know, I kind of go into my analytic over mode here. And, and the next thing I saw was a swirling vortex in my head. And it just pulled me right in. I, as I say, it's kind of sucked me in and it was a tunnel. And I was going, I was horizontal in the tunnel, feet first, traveling at a high rate of speed, you know, and it's just like something that never had happened to me before, but I saw light at the end of this tunnel. And the first thing that I thought, you know, was, um, what uh, did I just die? Is this a, is this a ton, is this the light everybody's been talking about? And you know, thoughts go through your head very quickly. And I remember thinking, well, it, did I just die? If I died, what did I die of? I wasn't sick. And uh, then the thought occurred to me, well, if I did, there's not much I can do about it now. So let's kind of go see what this tunnel and this light and everything is all about. So um, I came to a kind of a screeching halt right before I could go into the light. And I just hovered there and I tried to will myself to go in to, you know, to see, cause I couldn't understand, well, why am I waiting? What am I waiting for? And, but it wasn't, it didn't seem like it was totally up to me whether I went in or not. And then I had this thought, well, this is kind of boring. And with that thought that this is kind of boring, all this energy just poured into me. And it, I mean, it was like an implosion of energy and, and spun me back around as fast as could be and sent me back through the tunnel the same way, horizontal, feet first. And I was back in my physical body. Of course, my tea had spilled all over me and I couldn't move. My whole left side was paralyzed. And I was hearing voices in my head saying, breathe, Kathy, breathe. And of course, there was nobody around me at the time. And, but just these voices and, you know, just psychologists, you hear voices in your head, it's not such a good thing. And, but, you know, since there was nobody else there to help me, I just listened to whatever they said and they just said, breathe, breathe. And I knew in that moment that for some reason my heart had stopped and they were trying to breathe life back into me. And I took a big deep breath and, but I couldn't, I still couldn't move. And I was kind of panicking and they just said, relax, relax. And as I heard, as I was saying, they all of a sudden I could feel clicking on the left side of my body as if they were connecting my body in place so I could feel it again. And it was like, click, 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 click. I mean, I could actually hear it in my head. 
And, and suddenly I was able to move, but I had this pressure in my heart area and I thought, Oh God, I'm going to have to go see a cardiologist now if my heart actually stopped. And, and these, these voices pretty much said to me, no, you're not. I mean, it wasn't until years later that I went and saw a cardiologist about something else. And he had said, and I never told him about the near-death experience. And he said, I can't understand why you have scarring on the left side of your heart. So that was an indication right there, you know, of a heart attack or a heart, you know, my oxygen you know, that, that something had happened to me, some physical type of attack. But that wasn't until many, many years later did I actually have the confirmation of that in a physical uh, test. So anyway, as I got back into my body and the next day I went to work and, oh my God, I was feeling everybody's energy. I was feeling their emotions. I was feeling their anger. I was feeling the frustration. I mean, something like I'd never experienced before. And, and, you know, this was going on and on and it, it didn't feel good. It felt very toxic. And, uh, then every night between three and 4 AM, I was, I couldn't go. I, I would wake up and I'd be getting, having all these thoughts about the quantum world and the universe and everything going through my head. And I couldn't go back to sleep unless I got on my computer and I started researching what I was hearing and seeing and so forth like that. And, and the interesting thing was I was understanding and that wasn't my background. Physics wasn't my background. And, uh, and these voices in my head were correcting what I was reading. They were saying, well, that's not quite true, but that's as far, in essence, that's as far as your race's understanding of this concept is so far. So this was happening night after night after night. So I went, I, and I, I finally called a friend of mine. Now, he's a very gifted medical intuitive and timeline reader, and he had worked with me on very, very difficult cases in the past. And he, with the client's permission, of course, um, I, I, and just their name, he did not want to know anything about their history, why they'd come to me or anything of that nature. Um, I'd give them a name and I'd ask them to look from behind the scenes on a soul perspective what was going on. And uh, he uh, he said, uh, well, it looks like you died or almost died or something. And I said, yes, uh, but I didn't tell him the whole thing. And he says, but you have a whole new set of guides. They're very kind of technologically oriented, kind of geeky. And I said, well, what do they want? And he says, he says, you know, this looks like a soul contract. You, you came back to invent something. It looks like a, a health device or some type of medical device. And I just kind of poo-pooed it. And I said, oh, yeah, right. I don't know anything about that kind of stuff. And, you know, the more I tried to push it away, the more it became a bank, kind of like that magnificent obsession until, you know, I sat down and allowed those voices to start working with me on it. And then I got lots of different downloads and everything else. I was just going to ask about the, would you consider this like a download? Yes. Yes. Uh, I, well, I saw it three different ways. Sometimes they'd give me pictures in my head. They, they'd look for anything in my own memory bank that I could relate to, you know, um, and or they I would hear words in my head or just whole impressions would come down you know, that I had no knowledge of before about the universe, about how everything was mathematically coded, our DNA was mathematically coded, the consciousness of our cells understood only when you talk to in a language it understood, which was math. 
And I'm thinking, oh God, math was my worst subject in school. <laughs> you, 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 you're trying to tell me to work with a, a technology that deals with math? Oh my God, you know. So, um, so that started the whole process. It was a five-year process. And the reason I called the book Fractals of God was because First of all, they made me over 2,000 different substances, even vitamin C has, has a mathematical algorithm to it, a signature to it. And so it was sort of like channeling down all these different algorithms for all these different thoughts and emotions and substances and so forth like that, physical things. And um, but then they said, OK, we need you to work with the science of fractals now. And I, at the time, I didn't know what a fractal was. And it's sort of like those Russian matryoshka dolls, those nesting dolls, a doll within a doll within a doll to infinity. Well, if you zero in on any part, you see the exact hole again. But I didn't know at the time that when you couple fractals with mathematical algorithms, it amplifies the information coming through to the person. So, you know, they, they had me work with certain tones, you know, cause it wasn't frequency based. And then I said, and this was like in a computer-based program, you know, for Mac PCs and so forth like that. And I said, well, how am I going to deliver this to the body of the person? <laughs> you know, if it's, and, mm -hmm. and they went inside my memory and they brought forth the picture of Superman in the fortress of solitude where he's downloading all of these big crystals, the history of his race. And I said, Oh, crystals, <laughs> uh, like new age crystals. And they <laughs> said, no, they said, these have to be grown in a certain way. These crystals, they can't be, they have to be kind of lab grown crystals because they have to have perfect clarity to take information immediately, let go of it. And the kind of stuff that you found in gem shows and things like that have all these striations with it. Energy come goes in, information gets kind of locked into it. So you have to, you have to work in a different way. And so, you know, I found a way and I couldn't figure out how to make these crystal wands. You know, I found out later during Egyptian times, they had something very similar to this. You know, they called them the rods of Horus or the wands, uh, wands of uh, Ra. And they were sort of cylinders that they put quartz crystal uh, pieces in. And um, one was zinc, the other was copper, these two coil, uh, these cylinders. And the pharaohs would hold them in their hand for balancing. And they never went anywhere without them. And I had never seen them before. So it was kind of, in some ways, the same concept, except these were crystal rods. And, you know, I couldn't think of how am I going to attach that into a computer. And one day I was riding my bike in Santa Monica and they kept forcing me to look down at my handlebars, those black handlebars. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, I can make cylinders and circuits in there and put them together and 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 use an analog to digital box and wires and stick in and, and connect it to the computer. Just like that. And, you know, and so forth like that. And I mean, I would never have come up with these concepts on my own. You know, I mean, it was just so beyond. I mean, I may have PhD in psychology, but electronics and software and inventing was not my forte, <laughs> to put a pun. You yeah. know? So it was a whole new learning experience. And uh, so, you know, I, I uh, when it was ready after five years, I, I just, um, it was called the Trinfinity 8. And later I would go on to do a spiritual based program called the Ascension 11. So, it, you know, it dealt with physical, emotional release stuff, um, anti-aging, uh, you know, uh, and uh, overall wellness. 
And it, uh, I debuted it at a subtle energy show, um, uh, back in 2009 and, you know, just put a whole bunch of machines out there and told, you know, I didn't charge anything. I asked people just try and give me your feedback. And, and before I knew it, I had a long line at my booth because these people could see energy. I could, I can feel it. I can't see it. And they were telling me exactly what they were seeing as people were on different programs. And it was so enlightening. And, uh, you know, to make a long story short, before I knew it, you know, it was spreading all over the world. That's how I got to talk at, at Nexus and um, a lot of other places. So, you know, that was back then. And then I just, you know, it's sort of like a part of me said, it's time to go to Egypt. You have to explore your origins there. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, curious, <laughs> the curiosity will kill the cat sometimes. And the first time that I was actually, I was with three other people in the King's Chamber of the, of the Great Pyramid. And um, I got into the empty sarcophagus. Uh, the pyramids were never meant to be burial tombs, no matter what anybody says. And, you know, this, no one was ever buried in the Great Pyramid. And um, in fact, it's been a restoration project, even from the ancient Egyptians. <laughs> so it goes back before them, Absolutely. Uh, you know, to Atlanteans and before them to further, you know, so we, we, we could do a whole show on that. But um, I was laying, laying in the sarcophagus and I automatically knew it was I should start toning in there. So I was, I was toning, meaning I was, you know, kind of chanting and it's like the fabulous, fabulous sound chamber. And um, all of a sudden, as I'm doing that, I see the lid of the sarcophagus close on it. Now, there is no real lid on the sarcophagus in, in real life. And it's too, too small to be a real sarcophagus. And, um, and there's that moment of panic. I'm buried alive. And I heard the voices in my head, which later I turned out to find that they were eighth dimensional beings. And uh, they said to me, well, you know what to do. And I realized I did know what to do. I real I, I slowed down my breathing and I got out of my body, a uh, little out of body experience there in the Great Pyramid. And there was this hole that opened up in the in the sarcophagus, and I started going down into it. Uh, this is what I saw. I'm sure if anybody else was looking, they didn't see what I was seeing. And I kept thinking, aren't I supposed to go up? <laughs> Send up? I'm going down. Why am I going down? And um, I could see all different chambers, hidden chambers in the pyramid. And when I got well below the ground, I got to water tunnels. Now, I never heard anybody, and this was, this was many years ago, talking about water tunnels. And so... Um, I started uh, and, and I saw this. And then the next thing I knew, I was underneath the Sphinx and coming up to the top of the head, which I didn't know at the time there was a hole in the top of the, head of the Sphinx. And then somebody in my, I had only three people. I, I, it was my first time to Egypt. I wasn't leading a group then like I had years later. And somebody leaned over the sarcophagus and said, are you done in there yet, Kathy? <laughs> and whoosh, sucked right back into my physical body. Well, from then on, I knew I, whatever I, I've got to find my way to those water tunnels and make, and find them for sure underneath the pyramid. So it took a couple of years. I worked with a, an Egyptologist friend of mine, and we worked with the uh, head of the Giza Plateau. First of all, they wanted to know how I knew that there was water tunnels down there. And because apparently it hadn't been open for many, many years, not since like 1952, Dr. Salim Hassam. And it was called the Shaft of Osiris. And nobody went down there. 
And, uh, and they said no at first. And we just kept going on and, and, you know, and, and they, they finally said throughout a price thinking like I wouldn't bite on it. And I said, yes, I would have gone much more, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and so, uh, it was like 4am in the morning. Uh, we went, we were traveling over the Giza plateau with our flashlights and underneath the causeway. And he had the key to this little doorway that, you know, you wouldn't see normally if, if you were walking around the, the plateau. And, uh, he said, do you want to open it? And I said, yeah. <laughs> so I opened it in the first level and I knew I would have to go down deep down from that level even further down. There was three levels. The first level was kind of a nondescript kind of airless room. The second level, and now you're going down iron rickety ladders and they had, they had Jerry rigged some type of, you know, kind of light bulb system there. So at least you could see something. The second level was filled with seven niches, huge niches where sarcophaguses would have been. And there was only two still there. And they were, they looked like they were kind of made of um, basalt. And they were perfectly formed. The lids were open, uh, the rest of them. And that was kind of symbolic of the seven under, under, uh, uh, underworld gods, the seven sarcophagus niches. And I, I looked inside it and I could see there's no way you could have gotten these things down that those, those shafts. And I, you know, I kind of looked inside it and I could see that um, the seams were very uniform. And I knew in that moment that they had used ground basalt, brought it down there and made it into forms and cast it there. And, um, and that's, there was still some resin in there on the corners telling me, confirming that because, and they had some type of, you know, everybody thinks concrete or the, that kind of thing was invented during the Roman times. The Egyptians were far ahead of that, but they, they could control the drying process so they could sculpt things and everything else. And we still haven't quite figured out what they use to, to accomplish this. So anyway, when I got down to the very third level, and that's like 150 feet underground, there was water lapping at my feet. And uh, I hadn't told anybody, but I was prepared to take water samples. And I had, uh, you know, researched how I do this to make sure that they're pristine and everything else. And down below, I could, there uh, was the water came up to about hip high. And uh, there was papyrus and degree, debris in the water. And what looked like a little um, um, pier that was hanging over that was left from Dr. Salim Hassam in 1952. And underneath the water was this sarcophagus, uh, the slab of a sarcophagus with writing on it. And I asked the guy, have they ever tried to open it? This was the head of the Giza Plateau who was with us and my, my Egyptologist, me. So there was just three of us. He said, no. And I said, uh, why, why is that? He says, we can't open it. And my, my guide said, told me right away, they can't open it because it's hermetically sealed. You have to have the right DNA to get into it. Oh, wow. And, yeah. So, uh, you know, <laughs> I didn't try because I, I was pretty sure I didn't have the right DNA. Um, and interesting, as I reached in my backpack to get out my water sample bottle, all of a sudden, my key card from the Mina House Hotel, which is right next to the Great Pyramids, a very historical old hotel, the key card went flying out of my backpack. And usually when you drop something, it goes straight down. This one flying out and went flying right onto the lid of the sarcophagus. 
you know, and I thought, oh, isn't that interesting how, you know, symbolic the key code card lands on the sarcophagus top and the Giza plateau guy is trying to get it out and just digs deeper and deeper in. But you could, uh, so, you know, someday somebody's going to wonder whose card key that is. But I could see that there was tunnels leading out. And when I took the water sample fast and I did take pictures and I presented all those pictures at a pyramid conference, uh, a number of years back because nobody else had ever been in there or seen it. And after that, they started to open it to a few people for because they figured, you know, in Egypt, ka-ching, ka-ching, if you can get money, you know, That's right. <laughs> it's, it's possible. But most people couldn't because the liability factor of getting down those rings, those iron ladders, you know, you could have an accident really easily. Um, so I had those, I had those researched, uh, I brought, brought those back to a lab and in Irvine, California, I had a number of tests done on it. And uh, the interesting thing about it was that the water had a high salinity count. Now, the uh, Nile River, which used to come right up to the pyramid at one time, that was many thousands of years ago, and then the Aswan Dam was built, and now the Nile River is like about five miles away from the, the, uh, uh, from the Great Pyramid. And the Nile River is uh, uh, freshwater. It's not saltwater. And so the question was, well, where's the salt water coming from? You know, was it leaching from the the uh, walls, you know, and asking people, they didn't seem to think that that was a viable, uh, um, uh, you know, solution or theory to it because of the, the count of it. So I started tracing um, uh, where, um, if there was any other areas, lakes that were salt water. And there was about 75 miles away in Hawara, there was. Now, Hawara had all these weird moguls, which told me there's sunken shafts underneath. So um, somebody was doing ground penetrating radar. It was, um, oh, I've got, I forgot her name right now. She was doing it, the QT, because the Egyptian government did not want to let her do this. And she found out that there was huge, like uh, football-sized bunkers underneath this this uh, the Huara pyramid 75 miles from the Giza plateau and those had at one time had salt water that directly connected in to the Mediterranean and of course um, a little things have shifted landwise over the years the Sahara you know if you look in the Sahara desert has um, uh, f- fish fossils, and the sand and so forth like that. So we know some of that area was underwater probably, you know, during the last many, you know, tens of thousands of years ago when yeah, we absolutely. had ships and everything else then. So, you know, it was kind of interesting to figure out, uh, had I more time and I didn't feel like there was, you know, the Giza plateau guy would start hitting me or something. I would have, I would have gone right into that water and I didn't know how deep it was at the time, you know, and and just followed, you know, got my little kayak or something like that, just a blown up kayak and followed those tunnels out. Uh, whether somebody will do that, I don't know. But once I started opening it and writing about this, then I'm sure more people will probably be, you know, knocking at their door to say, well, let's look into this this particular area. So a number of years ago, I did the same thing for the Sphinx, you know, um, the Sphinx looks nothing. If you go back I, at the Library of Congress, I looked at some of the old pictures of the Sphinx and it doesn't look like anything it is now. It's gone through so much restoration. Yeah. And, you know, even they say the Great Pyramid, you know, it's Cheops. No, Cheops was a restorer 
uh, a pharaoh. He wasn't a builder pharaoh. So all these generations, the ancient Egyptians were just restoring what was something came back. And I think probably the closest was, you know, the uh, sleeping prophet Edgar Cayce said, uh, you know, the pyramid goes back at least 10,500 years and the Sphinx goes back prior to that. Yeah. So. Um, all right. Well, just uh, real quick, everybody just wanted to let you know, we are here live with uh, Dr. Kathy Forty. She is the author of a great set of books. We had, we're talking about fractals of God, her near death experience. And then the, <clears throat> excuse me, the machines that were downloaded to her from these interdimensional beings. So uh, if you're joining us tonight, we want to thank you very much. I need to give a quick shout out to uh, Nathan from the Quantum Show who sent in a PayPal for $3.33. Now that's a great number. And he says, this is a great guest and I completely agree. Um, but that 333 has significance to me because after Michelle and I had our, uh, our, I, I don't even want to call it an encounter. I don't even know what to call that triangle that we saw. I guess our experience, uh, I wake up almost every night at three 33. I just quit taking pictures of it on my phone, but I've got screenshots on my phone of waking up every morning at three 33 and then going back to bed. And, uh, Diane boss who sent us a $2 super chat. Thank you very much, Diane. You are awesome. And everybody in the community is great. So thank you for being here tonight and listening to Dr. Forti tell her story. Um, this is amazing. And I have heard of rumors of some type of a library under the Sphinx or some something is under the Sphinx that the governments do not, or at least the government of Egypt is trying to hide from people. And you also had in behind you, you have your, your wallpaper stacks, the library of truth. That's and the so, that right now. That's the Library of Congress. That's the main reading room of the Library mm -hmm. of Congress. What you're seeing, and uh, you know, I'll tell you that about that in a moment. But to answer yeah. your question about the Sphinx, yes. um, yeah, I think most of us learned about the uh, that in the right paw, there's some type of um, void there that uh, that Casey Edgar Casey talked about would uh, be um, they would find the written records that were secreted sec secreted there excuse me um, by some of the ancient priests and so forth uh, that told the prehistory and and also the future of of uh, our race and so forth like that and um, although they have found some voids they won't go there they, the, the Egyptians do not want to know that somebody may have created other than them, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I and mean, you know, what's interesting is, is that in our, our modern human ignorance, we don't listen to their, we, we call their history a mythology and they're, if I remember correctly, they have their creation story starts with Zet Tepi and it goes back almost 40,000 years or some, some huge amount where they talk about the original gods that walked the earth and, and, and they go way back and they sound like a high tech type of a being. And we still don't know much about the 
pyramids. And I mean, we're deducing a lot of things using sacred geometry and the, the numbers and the measurements and everything. But it's really fascinating um, how, how people outside of the mainstream are figuring this stuff out. And the people that should be trying to figure this out are refusing to. Yeah, it's uh, they they don't want to adjust their thinking. They've kind of bought into what their narrative is going to be. I mean, even the ancient Egyptians, uh, they still stick to the story with a wink, wink and a nod that that, uh, you know, it uh, the pyramids uh, are 4000 years old because to go back further than that would kind of make kind of nullify Allah, the God you know, coming there and, you know, he was a part of it and so forth like that. And so, I mean, you know, the more the younger Egyptians, they kind of know that they're not telling the whole story. Um, but, you know, they're sticking with the narrative. It's kind of like our world at large these days. There's, they're sticking with the narrative that, you know, that the, uh, the powers that be have agreed to. Well, I actually, um, behind the, uh, there's a dream Stella in between the two paws. Now, um, I have, you know, bribed certain people to make sure the guards aren't watching. And, you know, I've had private time down there. Majority of people cannot get onto by the uh, Sphinx. There's a viewing platform. You can't get down right there, you know, down and personal between the paws and everything else. And this dream, Stella, I started, you know, I, you wait, I'm kind of like my father, do it and pay the fine later, you know? And so I climbed up there before they could get me. And there is a doorway between behind that dream still. It's a big stone uh, from Ptolemy II. He put it up there and there is a doorway there. You know, nobody talks about that doorway. And uh, so when I walked around to the, it would have been the left side uh, flanks of the Sphinx, um, uh, the hind by the hind part law, there's a little tiny opening that that's that's got um, uh, its mesh. And so we just pulled it out. We yanked it out. And it was a little hole there. And the person I was with said, I can't fit down that hole. Are you interested? And I said, sure. <laughs> so I went down the hole. We documented the whole thing. Went down the hole. But I wouldn't definitely put it on the, uh, you know, on YouTube or anything else. Or they probably wouldn't let me back into the country because that's not allowed. But um, it was, it went down about, um, about 10 feet. There was a little ladder, went down 10 feet. And I was, like I said, I'm, I'm up the, the, the ass of the Sphinx in essence. And I go in and um, I'm, you know, got my flashlight and I can only go about six feet and it's been plugged off. And I think, you know, might have been early, you know, in the 1800s, some of the early explorers, you know, they were trying to um, shore up it from deterioration. And so, um, you know, Casey talks about not necessarily that the, uh, that the, the, uh, the information there about the records are not necessarily in physical form. They may be in another dimension there, you know, and um, I think you'd have to kind of go between different dimensions to access them, but they won't be accessed till the right time. And it's not the right time is not yet. I, I think there's a lot more people on the planet that have to awaken before, before that, that pos that's a possibility. But um 
you know, it, like I said, it looks nothing like it it, it did uh, uh, centuries ago. And that's why when I spent, um, I spent a whole week at the Library of Congress when I was doing my book Stacks. And actually that book came out of a dream. I was wet. One night I woke up and had the whole plot in my head and it was so detailed that I had to start writing it. And uh, um, originally it was just, you know, a web series and so forth like that. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to uh, write the full books. And I thought it was going to be one book and it turned into three books, uh, Stacks Library Truth, Stacks Awakening Truth, and Stacks Truth Will Set You Free. So as I, um, I knew Do that I think had- those were a download. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Because as I was writing them, I knew what the end point was, but everything that was coming and I was, as I was writing them and I'm saying, really? Really? <laughs> you know, those are, these are definitely channeled books. There's well, no Jan- doubt about it. Janice asks an interesting question. She says, and sorry to interrupt you, because I want you to get back on that, uh, the writing process of your stack series. Um, but she says, they say there is a door below the right ear of the Sphinx. Did you see it or know about it? No, there's... Um- there's some deterioration by the ear that looks like an indentation. Now, at one time, the head of the Sphinx, I don't know if they filled it up since then, but the head of the Sphinx had a chamber in it, a hollow, and uh, the priest would come up there and it was sort of like the great Wizard of Oz thing, you know, and give, uh, you know, readings, you might say, and uh, to people to come you know, that ask questions and so forth. That's probably been, that's been blocked up, but there is, if you look on an aerial view, there is still a little hole on top of the head. And that's what I came out when I came out of the, uh, in that uh, out of body state, I came right out of shot right out of the head, out of that hole. Um, Okay. Well then what do you, what do you make of what Nathan from the quantum show has to say? He says, yes, a lot of things are only accessible through things like remote viewing and astral projection. So I take it, you agree with that. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's not to say I'm more talented. I was trained in um, uh, remote viewing by Russell Targ, who's like the granddaddy, you know, Stanford research, you know, I lived in Northern California one time and I met him at a New Year's Eve party <laughs> and we were, a few of us were talking to him about remote viewing and he goes, oh, anybody can learn it, you know, and we said, well, will you teach us to us? So, you know, outside of the party at another time he did and, you know, I used it then, I used it then and later on to, um, to uh, in some of my alien encounters, you know, I mean, which I got, I saw some very strange looking beings. And so when all of this stuff, I thought, you know, I'm not going to write a book about all my strange, strange (laughs) otherworldly experiences, you know, I mean, I can get away with a lot because I have a PhD after my name, because people said, you can make the weirdest shit sound normal, you know, Um, but I thought, I'm just going to weave some of these stories into my stacks books. And my friends kind of know, okay, this is really Kathy's story. And some will know, you know, differently, but some of it's that it's channeled and some of it's Kathy. And so, you know, it's uh, some things that people will think I made up actually weren't made up. (laughs) You know, that was, that was the beauty of it. So when I went there for a whole week, in fact, my guides had told me, this was January of 2020. They said, make sure you get to the, the Library of Congress no later than the first week of March of 2020. And I had a, a Egypt group to lead in, in January. And I kept thinking, well, what's the rush? 
And uh, so I made my, you know, my reservations to stay there for, you know, about 10 days. And, and I had a friend who worked in congressional offices to take me all over Washington, too, on top of it. And um, uh, I, you know, a week after I left the Library of Congress, the whole world shut down for COVID. And so did the library. And I never would have had that opportunity. I was able to... Um, through the main librarian, I got in touch with her from uh, not the master librarian, but the main reading room librarian and some of the other smaller reading rooms to, I got in touch with them personally. I got behind the scenes of the stacks, which nobody gets to go into so that it was very accurate. So that I thought that if, if an employee of the Library of Congress ever read this book, they would say, yeah, that's pretty accurate, you know? Um, so maybe that comes from my days of being, you know, I also st I started out as a researcher at CBS News in New York many, many years ago and then a field producer and so forth. But um, but yeah, make sure you get your data right. So, I mean, that 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 Library of Congress is just filled with symbology and Masonic stuff. I mean, it just felt like if there wasn't, there should be a portal <laughs> in there right. to another library, to a library truth. And maybe there is, but maybe I just didn't stumble upon it yet, but it felt so real. I mean, the main character is, is a, has acquired savant syndrome. So I used a lot of my psychopathology to create really unusual characters. And he sees the world, he has synesthesia. He sees the world in numbers, you know? So, you know, he, 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 you'd say, well, you're a six or whatever. And, and so, you know, he sees music in numbers. He sees everything in numbers. And, and because he's such a good at numbers, he's fabulous at, at, uh, at computer systems okay. and uh, analysis. So, so that, so it became, he's the one that stumbles upon it and opens up a whole new thing and how to use this information that is being accessed by the global elite to turn it on them and not get killed. Uh, okay. And we do bring in the alien agenda and everything else in the book. So, okay. So we, we have a question um, from uh, Guy Merritt, one of the friends of the podcast, and he's been a guest on here a few times because of his experiences and stuff. And he asks, have you seen a UFO? Uh, not that it really matters, just curious. And I actually, actually we're at the one hour mark already i want you to hold on to that question and that answer and we're gonna go ahead and take a quick break everybody we're gonna uh, step away grab something to drink go to the bathroom stretch out a little bit and then we're gonna come back with dr kathy forty who is the author of fractals of god and the stack series which is uh, it just sounds amazing. And I have one of your PDFs. I have the second book and I hope to pick up the first one. Oh, Is it the first before the second? Yeah. I, um, I believe your, pu your publicist sent me the second one. Maybe she thought to send me the first oh. one. Oh yeah. So it, it was attached <laughs> to an email from her. And uh, um, I was like, well, maybe I can just jump into this one, but I'm, I'm yeah. wanted to ask you really quick. Is uh, they're audible versions of the books because I love listening yes. to books while I drive. All of them are uh, are in print, uh, are in um, Kindle, and are in Audible. Okay, awesome. Through Amazon, awesome. all through Amazon. Okay, 
Awesome. So I know where one of my credits is going. I'm going to grab that first book. Okay. Yeah, well, Kathy, I'm, the first book. Okay. I'm going to send you to the back and uh, Michelle and I will head out here in one second. All right. Okay, everybody, man, we really hope you are enjoying our guest right now. Michelle, this is I'm, talk about a download. And I know that I'm wow. quiet, but I'm listening. I'm completely fascinated about anything with Egypt. So, well, yeah, you teach mythology. I of do. course you are. I teach about four weeks worth of Egyptian <laughs> mythology. And I know four weeks sounds like just like it, it's such a fraction of time. I, I really wish that the class that I teach was a longer class and I could dig deeper into it. Well, anybody who thinks that the dynastic Egyptians built that stuff, you know, the pyramids, the little uh, vases that are perfect, you know, to one one hundred thousandth of an inch, you know, can balance on a on the bottom perfectly. If you think that was done with a hammer and a copper chisel um, or a pounding stone, you are deathly wrong i was gonna say just look There's, at the lids yeah oh yeah Let, let's not even get into the the uh what is it sakara with, with the black boxes of sakara yeah i mean those things are amazing hundred ton granite you know very hard stones just amazing just amazing i mean we can't reproduce that today you know, and to me, when I look at it from like a, a map view, a top down view, it looks like a circuit board. It looks like a huge circuit board. And it's really interesting how Dr. Uh, Kathy is talking about, you know, crystals and energy and all of this stuff seems like it is just uh, uh, all about energy, frequency, portals, different dimensions. This is, this is just fascinating to me. I love this stuff. And just before we jump on break, got to give a quick shout out to Jeanette Baumbach for joining us tonight. So thank you, uh, Nathan. Once again, thank you very much for your um, $3 and 33 cents sent to PayPal. We greatly appreciate it. And Guy Merritt who is joining us, but for right now, I think we're going to go ahead and head on out for about four minutes. We'll see you guys in a few minutes. See you soon. Traveling near New Boston, Michigan? Hungry? Well, then you need to check out New Boston Coney and Grill tucked away at 37005 Huron River Drive with daily specials, homemade soups and desserts, and a staff that makes you feel like family. You will not be disappointed. Give them a try for dine-in or carry-out at 734-606-5313. You can find their page, including their menu, on Facebook. Bon Appetit! Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay. Hey, everybody. Man, that was a quick four minutes. <laughs> so hopefully everybody's doing well. Thank you for joining us tonight, everybody. I cannot uh, thank you enough on this later Friday evening, uh, end of the week, and just love hanging out with everybody and having these great conversations with guests like our guest tonight, who is Dr. Kathy Forty, and she is the author of The Fractals of God, and also the Stack series of books. And I know Michelle is going to be coming back in here in just a little bit and wants to ask some questions and bring up some things that she saw from chat. So uh, she'll be joining us here shortly, but I'm going to go ahead and bring our guest back on, Dr. Forty. Kathy, thank you for joining us once again. Thanks, Wayne. <laughs> so when we left... Our buddy Guy Merritt had asked if you had ever seen a UFO. Not that it really matters, you know, but what has your experience been with uh, possible extraterrestrials or extra dimensional machines or, you know, or creatures or anything along those lines? Well, uh, I've had many experiences, but I'll, I'll tell you two ones because each one is different in and of itself. But when I was in my late 20s, um, I had, uh, uh, I found myself on board a very, very, very big spaceship parked outside the moons of Saturn. And, uh, I didn't know later that the, you know, from somebody I know in NASA that when they did the Cassini probe, uh, there is a huge spaceship there and they scrubbed everything of it. Um, so, uh, when I was on this ship, um, uh, it was just travel. It was, it, there was one that's, that is actually set there, but this one wasn't, it was in that, that airspace. And I was talking to the captain of the ship there. I would call him the commander and the very, it was so lucid. I mean, it was like, I was really there, even though I didn't feel like I was abducted or anything like that. I found my way there and I was talking to this commander who was tall and very humanoid looking. And we were talking as if we knew each other you know, that, uh, I, that very familiar. And he was showing me, this was like I said, in my early twenties, I'm 70 now. So, uh, so it goes way back 50 years or so. And back then, um, they had little tiny rings in their ear, just like a band, a gold band, uh, which, which was so totally hooked into the consciousness of the ship. And this was way before the, the days of Bluetooth. So when Bluetooth came around, I kept thinking, oh, well, that's interesting. <laughs> Here it is, you know, kind of different. And he was telling me about the, um, I got the feeling that they, that they were Arcturian and that uh, that he he was telling me about why they were here. And he was kind of talking to me like one scientist to his, another scientist, which I'm not a scientist, but I don't know, maybe in another lifetime, you know, where we knew each other, I was. And, um, and that was wiped from my mind when I got up. But when we, when we had, when we said our goodbyes, there was this exchange of energy 
heart to heart that was so profound that I woke up back in my physical body and my whole body was shaking. The only thing I could, and it was very pleasurable, the only thing I can liken it to was somebody having an orgasm. And uh, years later, when I spent um, a week in the desert with Dr. Stephen Greer doing a contact thing, um, you know, we'd spend the whole day in meditation and then we'd go out between 10 and 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning and consciously uh, try to make contact. And, you know, we started, uh, he would always start a meditation, you know, we were in our zero gravity chairs in the dark in a circle and so forth. And at one point he said, he said, oh, this is really interesting. He said, uh, um, there's a commander of a Federation commander here. And he's, he's between the person who's next to me and the woman on the other side. Now it was the first day. So he didn't know who I was yet. And I'm thinking, I didn't say anything. I'm thinking, is this my commander? <laughs> you know, cause he kind of described him and he was kind of surprised Stephen, where that there was this, this person was there. And so that night I asked for a sign, you know, uh, my guy, is this the one I remembered from my late twenties having met in that spaceship and in the middle of the night I woke up and there was all these streams of light coming through the ceiling, through the walls, through the, through the everywhere. And it was coming right into my heart. And it was like a flooding sensation that felt like, Oh, like, you know, you can only gasp like some type of ecstatic thing. It wasn't orgasmic, but it was some type of ecstatic thing that I knew in that moment that, yes, this this was the same person. But while I was there, um, while I was there at the uh, with with uh, Stephen Greer and doing our things, I, you know, we do a lot of remote viewing. And there was one time I found myself re- there's and this was down in southern Arizona. And there's a lot of bases in Arizona, military bases. and. I uh, suddenly found myself um, remote viewing over uh, a, a military, uh, one of our military bases. The only reason I know because I could see the insignia on the plane. And immediately I thought, I don't want to be remote viewing over one of our installations because I knew inherently they could lock on to you. And um, so I just kind of said, I would rather know where the ET bases are, <laughs> you know? Right. And, and, you know, usually I say things like this, not expecting anything. And I think maybe that's the beauty of it. When you don't have any expectations, then kind of sometimes things happen. Yeah. And I heard and I heard in my head, look to the artificial mountain. And I, it's dark as could be out there. You couldn't look, you couldn't see any artificial ma- mountain, let alone, you know, where it was. But my mind took me there. And all I knew was that it wasn't necessarily a real mountain, but it had it appeared to be a mountain. And suddenly, I mean, I found myself, even though there wasn't a, a physical opening, I found myself going down miles down into the earth. And when I got down there, there was all of these tunnel systems, you know, here again, we go with tunnels, Kathy and tunnels. And, but these tunnels, you could have driven a 747 or a big plane through, they were mm-hmm. huge. And the thing that that fascinated me was that they were all lit up and there was no source of light. There was no like like uh, light bulbs or fluorescent or anything, no shadows. It was all even, you know, and I, I didn't know where the light source was coming from. And and I didn't see any people down there, you know. And and so I just started walking around and I was led over to this one area where I walked around the corner and there's this wall and it has all this writing on it. 
And, you know, I know hieroglyphics, I can't read it, but I know what they look like. And mm -hmm. it wasn't hieroglyphic. I didn't know if it was, you know, ancient Sumerian cuneiform or mm, some alien language, language or, or whatnot. But anyway, um, so uh, I, I, I go around the corner seeing what to see what's what's behind this this wall with all the writing and there i mean to the shock of all shocks there's like a i don't know 10 12 feet tall praying mantis sitting on a pillow almost as if it was meditating and it's is it's uh uh antennae were kind of going off and it, it knew the minute i'd come into the room it knew my it knew energy i mean it, it couldn't see me but it knew i was there and it didn't want me there. And it gently pushed me out like, you don't belong here. You don't belong here. Next minute, I found myself coming back out and I was back in my body, you know, back back to the circle. And, you know, I've kind of been pushed out of places. I don't belong remote viewing many times. But after that, I knew, oh, my God, what's with these praying mantises? I was and just going to ask mm -hmm. that because we've heard that many times that this is a standard being of, of these ET insectoid type creatures. Well, I, I asked Stephen Greer and he said, uh, he said, well, they're the kind of the teachers. But when I asked my guides, they had a different story. And this is what they told me. They said, uh, um, yes, they're teachers, but they're teachers to those little automatron gray alien beings uh, you know, they're the ones that sometimes abductees say they see you know the grays then they see maybe a mantis standing further away in the corner silently yeah well i think that they're making the grays take the the, the bad the bad rap and they're the ones controlling the show okay so, <laughs> um yeah. Well, and I'm Michelle, not trying to say there might not be some good ones. I'm sure there are, but you know, for some reason, they've kept a very, very low profile. In and I understand that they also do some manipulation of the Draco reptilian races as well. Mm. Uh, but they, like I said, they've kept a very low profile. So I thought in my stacks books, it was time to unmask them. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Speaking of that, I know Michelle wanted to bring something up about the Library of Congress, I believe. I found it very interesting, and it was something that Janice had said about, I believe it was her father-in-law, and okay. it had kind of gotten passed up. It was right before break, so I am looking for it. I, I went through, it looked like somebody was a, a, a Russian translator or Yeah, something. the yes. Russian translator, um, right I here. I mean, they have, I mean, there's, there's so many sub-libraries within within the library of congress every room you know they'll have the you know like uh asian literature and so forth and they have a library that's in china i went into every single one asked and every i went through all underneath the under tunnels under capitol hill you know that there's a whole city practically underneath there i mean that's not hidden you know that's the people do get get from you know the different senate buildings and everything else mm -hmm. and i mean it, it's it's fascinating but yes if you go into all those places and i saw somebody else said you know um i me only mentioned um masonic symbology because you know there's sacred geometry in there but the thing is that before i actually went to the library of congress i knew that there was a society called minerva 
<laughs> How I knew that, I didn't. The later on, I found out there really was. And um, that this is what they told me, that th this was, you know, that I couldn't name it this society for the, the, that, the society that was behind running some of the world and the Library of Truth and Antarctica and the alien agenda and so forth like that. So, um, yeah, all, all that's kind of woven into the books, you know, and finding all these portals, you know, and how what what the character has to do be, regarding these portals that have let in all this alien energy. I mean, at one time I had to turn down George Norrie's show because people wanted me to just to talk about the alien artifacts in Mexico I came across. And oh, I thought, yeah. I thought there's there's nothing in here for me to 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 talk about this because there's so much dark energy down there. I just did not want to encourage people to go down there. In fact, I think I got, uh, you know, I at one point while I was down there, I feared for my life as well. Um, there's tablets uh, that, you know, you can dig down deep under trees, under roots and find these tablets. And I think that they were put there many, many, many centuries ago so that they would never come together again, because I saw in my head, once they came together, like sort of like a puzzle pieces that they fit together, you know, they had to mm -hmm. like, sort of like a Jenga puzzle or something or like that. Once they fit together, they would open a portal that you wouldn't want opened. Yeah, that that's kind of scary stuff once you get into that. And yeah. they're, they're trying to warn us. But you know, um, Michelle and I had an interesting run in years ago before I want to say it was before our experience we had with the triangle where we ran into a woman in a parking lot of a shopping store and she just came up to us because we were wearing, or I think I was wearing a hoodie or a t-shirt because we had just gotten back from Lake Tahoe and we got married out in Lake Tahoe and she came walking up and very nice lady, but she just said, "Have do you know about the giants out in the the mountains?" And we were kind of shocked. And when you were sitting there talking about the the large tunnels and stuff, something came to me to ask you. You know, in in your experiences now with your out of body experience and the knowledge that you have grant have been granted. Have you ever seen anything about uh, some type of a giant race of humanoids that been on this planet? And what well, do you possibly know about that? The, well, the one I saw was 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 tall, but not giant like. And I mean, having lived in California, it's been well known that Catalina mm -hmm. Island, they dug up a lot of redheaded giants that the smithsonian came in and you know took over and kind of denies but you can find you can find old photographs of them you know and uh you know all that stuff i don't know where the smithsonian puts all the weird and wonderful stuff that they don't want you questioning but you know it's sort of like why you know of course you know there was uh, our, we've gone through a lot of different evolutionary cycles i mean i personally haven't well, no, no, I have to back up because I did remote view once and I wanted to know about that, that uh, I guess they call it Niburu, you know, and I wanted to see what, what that, that thing was all about. So a lot of times I will remote view in space because it, it's fascinating to me. And I came across what looks like uh, a large planet, but it's actually a spaceship. 
you know, and it's just in orbit. But the fact is that what I got that feeling was that it was unstable in its orbit. And that's why it kept being pulled in one direction. And uh, so I poked my head in to see who was in there. And there was a race of giants in there. And they were arguing about something. And I was pushed out really fast. So, um, you know, and, you know, so then, then I thought, okay, I'm just going to hang out on the universe and see what's the story. And that's when I saw ships coming out of the sun. Now the ancient Mayans talked to, you know, some of those, the, the uh, stones that we found in Mexico in that alien dig had pictures of ships coming out of the sun. You know, so ancient, uh, the ancient, uh, even Mayan, some of the ancient Mayan stuff shows this as well. So I saw uh, something coming out. It was a ship. And then I saw a ship getting ready to go in. So I, I didn't know. I thought, well, can I psychically, you know, remote viewing hitch a ride and see what it's all about? And I never done that before. But you can find out you can do a lot of things if you don't think, oh, I can't do that. And, and so I did, and it was like going through a time warp, a space, going through from, from this dimension into the out, what was on the other side of the sun, which was a, di a whole different dimension. And there was all these ships lined up, almost like in an arc formation. And the colors, the colors in this dimension are literally indescribable. You know, uh, they were just so brilliant. And these ships, there was one particular area ships where they were flashing some type of light beam at the ships coming in to this dimension. And when they did that, it lit up the colors of the ship, which sort of like is like when we fly our flag, our country flag of our ship to identify who we are, what we are. And this particular one happened to be the what I was coming through was was purple. And so they let it through right away. I'm not sure what that meant, but it was purple. And I got the feeling right away that they needed to decontaminate coming from one dimension to another dimension. Um, I'm not saying necessarily bacteria, or maybe it's just the energetic imprint. Um, you know, I don't have a full understanding of that. But as, as the ship I hitched a ride on went forward, I was suddenly propelled back out, you know. Um, I've been thrown out of a lot of places, <laughs> but that was eye opening. And that yeah. after that was when I started to come across, um, um, artifacts and things of that showing that, uh, the sun is a portal interdimensional portal. Okay. Yep. I think we've heard that before too, that other people have, have seen this same type of thing. So, um, Next Saturday, we have a guest coming on, and her name is Vivian Chavette. And she, because, and the reason I bring this up is you had mentioned about Octurian, and she says that she is a true Octurian hybrid avatar. And she has done a book called Interstellar Communications. Have you guys spoken before? And do you know each other? No. No. Wow. Okay. This is really weird that our next guest would actually be somebody who is like a channeler of Octurian. And you had mentioned that that's just really very interesting because I'm not sure what to expect from her interview in, uh, 
Yeah, I've I, I that's one thing I've never heard before was well, they're sort of the, they're the master, the enlightened ones, you know. Okay. They, they they um they showed me. I don't know if she would say this because I have not read this anywhere. But you know, even when they, I mean, they they they've kind of conquered you know longevity, um, where we haven't, <laughs> and um, and it showed me that when their life contract is up and they know it consciously, they'll retract their energy from the body. You know, it's a conscious death. It's not, you know, and, and it's, you know, it's on their own terms. Uh, I'd be curious to see if, if this is what she knows too, but this is what I was shown. Um, I don't know. You know, sometimes there's yeah. no way to substantiate everything that you learn. You, and, you right. know, unless somebody else has gotten the same thing independently of you. But um, uh, the Arturians I find uh, very fascinating. You know, it's, uh, um, I, you know, I, I have a feeling that, you know, maybe before I was, um you know, I have a good friend. I don't know if you know, um, James von Prague mm. and James von Prague is kind of like the master. I speak to dead people, <laughs> persons, you know, Hollywood, okay. everything. The ghost whisperer was based on him and so forth like that. And I've known him for years. And, and one day he sat down and he said to me, and, and he started kind of doing a reading, which I didn't really kind of expect, you know, that he would go into certain things. And, and he said, he said, he said, they're showing me you're not from here. He said, I always thought you were an alien. <laughs> 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 but are we all? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? And he says, they tell, they're showing me you come from the Melchizedek energy. He didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what that meant. But, um, but anyway, you know, so, you know, we, we've all kind of had our sojourns. You know, in different planets and so forth, like that. It doesn't, you know. I think we just come to Earth to do our our heavy duty learning. Yeah, Michelle, what what well, did you put up there? You're walking away tonight with a new nickname of the original hitchhiker of the galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> Why did somebody yeah, say that? from from Dorothy? Uh, th thank you for joining us tonight, Dorothy, and uh, coming in when you did and saying hi, and it's awesome to see you. So thank you for joining us tonight. Yeah. Um, well, you know, there's a couple of things I want to ask you about since we're on this whole alien and disclosure and things. Uh, recently, things have been really heating up with the U.S. government and David Grush and whistleblowers and UAP, UFO, who's studying them? One minute they're saying there's no evidence. The next minute we have three gentlemen going in front of Congress uh, talking about all of these uh, things that they've seen and recorded and radar and all of this. And then we have another group that wants to keep it all quiet. What do you make of the recent whistleblower revelations and what's been happening within the United States government when it comes to UFOs and UAPs? Well, everything's a distraction. <laughs> you know, it's like smoke and mirrors. It's sort of like when something is heating up over here, oh, let's give them something else to distract them. That'll keep them busy. You know, it's like a shiny little object and so forth like that. And, you know, didn't Werner von Braun say, you know, Braun, uh, Werner von Braun say that uh, the next the next big one will be a fake alien invasion? Yep. You know, you know it's sort of like uh, when I went and I had my near death experience and I couldn't, I learned why I couldn't go into the light, by the way. And they said, well, you don't plan on coming back to this dimension. 
you know, it was always planned that way. If you go into the light, you will be coming back to the third dimension. It's kind of a reincarnation trap from what I understand of it, you know, so sometimes they lure you, it's kind of a simulation, they kind of lure you in with dead relatives and so forth like that. And so I said, well, well, then what does one do? That's why I couldn't go into the light, you know, and they said, well, one, when one passes, um, be in the stillness of self, and the self will show you where you are, uh, are to go. You know, you will, you'll be led to whatever dimension it is that you come from, or you feel most resonate with and feel familiar with. And I think a lot of us are probably not going to come back to this dimension after this lifetime. You know, I think, I think some of us old souls have said, well, I've seen enough, <laughs> you know, it's getting pretty weird down here, you know, <laughs> and uh, it was, it's kind of a way to kind of push us to, to move on in our evolutionary cycle. You know, let, let the younger souls, you know, fight it out and, you know, deal with emotional states and, you know, all that kind of energy discordance and so forth like that. You know, it's, yep. we were there too at one time. It doesn't make us any more evolved or less evolved or so forth like that. We're all here for the experience. And, um, you know, so I think that, uh, you know, I uh, knew years ago that, you know, I wasn't coming back, but I didn't realize, consciously realize that the light is a trap. Okay. Oh, well, you know, we're going to start wrapping it up here. Um, we're, we're already a minute and 35 or an hour and 35 minutes in, and we usually like to try to keep it to about an hour and a half. So, um, my one last question that I had, and it was from a listener from last week who said that he wanted us to do a show and do some research into Antarctica. Can you, do you have any insights into Antarctica and uh, what might be going on there? I know there were talks of pyramids. <laughs> yeah. And it's not a place where you would think to find anything. Yeah. Um, well, well, Antarctica was once very fertile land. I mean, you know, having spent many Egyptian lifetimes and some of them I'm, I'm aware of, you know, I, I know that the uh, before that, the Atlanteans, who were very, very sophisticated technologically and brought a lot of their, their information and knowledge to, to ancient Egypt after the third and final upheaval of the earth, you know, we've had many pole shifts and, and so forth over the time. And that science has proven that it's not something I'm making up. Mm -hmm. And that they had many outposts in different parts of the world. And Antarctica was one of their outposts. Um, and so um, when they started going down deep into Antarctica, they found very fertile, you know, land down there, you know, lots of, you know, uh, greenery, CO2. So CO2 is not necessarily bad, like people think that is, you know, and because it gives lots of plant life. So, you know, it's just like the Sahara Desert, you know, has fish fossils and things like that. And so, you know, we know we've gone through a lot of different, but what better way to hide something in uh, an Iceland, you know, a frozen Iceland and uh, that already had many tunnels in it. And, um, you know, I, I met some people who have business that they do nothing but tunnel making. 
you know, um, like subway tunnels and everything else, major big construction tunnels. And it's not such a, it's not such a hard thing. I mean, they have devices that they can turn those walls into glassine, you know, and kind of melt them into shape. I mean, it's really kind of amazing. And so Antarctica would be a perfect base that, you know, why else would many, many countries in the world claim bases there when it doesn't look like anything else is going on except the penguins, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, the Nazis, the Germans, everything, you know, there's a, there's a wide history of things going on there. So I think that that's where a lot of, probably a lot of uh, maybe the reverse engineering and uh, their secret space programs and so forth. I mean, we even have it here on Maui. And in, in fact, I ran into somebody the other day from the 15th surveillance space squadron of Maui, which is part of Space Delta II. Now, this is a big air force and almost nobody on Maui knows that they're here. <laughs> you know, I yep. took a wild guess because I'd done some research and he had a patch. He was wearing, he was in Starbucks picking up his coffee and he had a patch on his, 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 uh, uh, you know, side, his arm. I said 15 on it. And I just, I said, I kind of thought I've never seen the patch. So I don't know if this is, so I asked him and he goes, yes. And of course, first of all, I said, thank you for your service. You know, and immediately he thought, oh, she's a friend, you know, <laughs> and, and we got to talking about it and, you know, oh, did you guys see anything up there on August 8th when <laughs> Lahaina was hit by, you know, fires and things like that. And, um, you know, it's almost a, all AI based with the observatory up there. They can see things in space 10,000 times uh, what the human eye can see in deep space. And you tell me something isn't going on up there? You know, why make a space force? So. <laughs> well, you know, we had the uh, the former commander. He was a lieutenant colonel, and I think he was in line to be a general at some point. But he was um, commander of Space Force in Colorado. And he was very tight-lipped when it came to talking about some of this stuff. So he really gave us a a, a rundown of, um, and he is a great guy, but how Space Force came to be. And, uh, you know, it's been around for a while, he said. Oh, yeah. And it's just was uh, given its own designation as its own type of armed forces like air force marines right now it's there is a legitimate space force and uh but then you know things started getting weird in the in the military and what they were trying to do and who was running things and uh he ruffled a lot of feathers because he was against a lot of the stuff that he was seeing so well if i remember correctly he was talking about back into the early 80s yeah uh, yeah so well, they look at this way, anything that we see now is yep. at least at least 30 to 50 years behind what they already have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to wrap this up, everybody. And uh, a couple uh, parting questions for you. Where can people find you and learn more about your books? And do you have any other appearances coming up uh, in the near future that you want to uh, advertise or talk about? Well, um, they can learn about my um, my software technology for my near death experience by you know either getting the book Fractals of God, or uh, going to the uh, Trinfinity8.com website or the Ascension11.com website. 
And also for the books, it's uh, stackslibraryoftruth.com, um, but they're all on Amazon. And, uh, um, you know, they're kind of getting their following. And actually, I'm, I'm doing uh, a fourth book now, which is 20 years later. I'm almost finished with it, which made me have to channel and project 20 years into the future. And it, it's not as good as, as you would want it to be. <laughs> well, got to ask the the last, our, kind of our signature question, Kathy. And do you have any ties to Michigan? Any sort of studies here? No, I don't. But, you know, I was born in Chicago. And yeah, uh, I remember close. going to Ann Arbor. And I remember going to oh, Mackinac yeah. Island and okay. all those places as a kid. Great, great state. <laughs> yep. Well, now you got a connection with us and uh, we, we're very happy to have you on. And uh, Janice said this earlier, Michelle had it up here and she said, fascinating show. Thank you, Kathy Forty. You are such an interesting guest. Hope you return. So yeah. this has been uh, very quick and we definitely hope you would uh, make some time here in the future to come back on the show and talk some more about your experiences and new books or whatever you have coming up. That'd be yeah. awesome. Cause I think in the future, maybe we'll talk about any UFO sightings over Maui uh, as Janice has called out here, especially during the volcanic action. She said that her friend sees them. Oh, that's so, the big Island. Uh, you know, Ma that's the big Island of Hawaii. Yeah. We're Ma but Maui does have, we, we see some, they, the, some unusual clouds and I've taken pictures of them, which I have, a, I know that there's something behind it. Sometimes they masquerade themselves in clouds, you know, mm. too. And but, I, I think that we are definitely going to hold on to that for next time. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Kathy, it's been awesome. Thanks, we are glad that you could make it on our show and uh, everybody this will be out in audio format probably by tomorrow morning and um we just want to thank you for joining us and everybody for watching and all right kathy we're going to send you to the back thank you very much all right mahalo from miley <laughs> <laughs> all right take care all right, Michelle, what a show man this is this has been another great one it's it just has. amazing and everybody out there that's been watching um, and participating in chat, we want to just uh, say thank you very much for joining us on this Friday night. I know it's, uh, I, I mean, what else are you going to do on a Friday night anymore? You know, it's come and check out the, the paranormal and in October. It's almost Halloween. Crazy yeah. teachers running around in costumes. Yeah, we got Michelle getting abducted. I mean, what do you, what do you, what else it do was, you want? It was fun. Yeah, the kids love that costume. So, all right, everybody, I think it's that time. I'm tired. I'm on these heavy meds, you know, highly medicated, never imitated, as my tagline says. So, Michelle, what do you think? Have a great night, everyone. Have a great night and a great weekend. And we will see you guys next Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern, where we're going to have on Vivian Chavet. And that's going to be an interesting conversation as well. So until next time, everybody, remember, keep your eyes to that sky.
You have been listening to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. You can reach us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at mi underscore UFO and join our Facebook group by searching for Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters. So until next time.